morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 2. Um, this morning also, I just want to ask you guys to be praying for Pastor Rory. He's homesick today. Um, he had a wedding yesterday. He kind of woke up in the morning feeling kind of crummy. Um, went to the wedding, came home, threw up a couple times, took a long nap, and so he's not doing well. Um, he's been blowing up my phone this morning. So um, he's doing well, but he's home resting, and so we want to pray for him as we begin um, our, our time together. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you for the work of your Holy Spirit and, Lord, for your word. True, it is a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and we thank you and praise you, Lord, that you've given it to us. And, and your word says that you honor your word above even your own name. And so this morning we pray, would you, Lord, would you grace us with your presence? And Lord, we pray, would you help us to submit to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives today? As you bring things to mind, Lord, as you prick our hearts, may we be quick to respond, Lord. And we ask, Lord God, for your anointing and your blessing, not just upon the preaching of your word, but on the reception of your word as well. Lord, help us to be expository listeners this morning as well. And Lord, we want to be mindful and remember our, our pastor this morning, asking you to bless Rory, that you'd encourage him and be with him as he rests, Lord, that you'd touch him and heal his body, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I just re- looked up at the clock, the clock's ticking in the back, uh, even, I gotta make my prayers much shorter so I have more time. Um, so, Acts chapter two, verses 14 through 41, a, a large chunk of scripture here this morning. The title of this morning's message is Peter preaches at Pentecost, its effect, its explanation, and its response. Its effect, its explanation, and its response. So in the opening verses of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that Christianity is all about Jesus. It is the essence of Christianity. It's all about him. It's all about who he is and what he has done and what he has taught, what he is doing, and what he is yet to do. Not only does it define Christianity, but it also defines the mission and the message of the church. How did the church come into being? How did the church carry out its mission and proclaim its message? And how has the church survived and thrived for over 2,000 years? Well, the book of Acts chapter 2 answers that question. It tells us it's because of God, not man, but God. Someone once said this, so few with so little have accomplished so much because of what Jesus did to them, in them, and through them. Again, so few have, with so little have accomplished so much because of what Jesus did to them, in them, and through them. And so this morning, we're going to move from the power that we've been looking at over the last couple weeks to the preaching. We're going to look at the very first time that the message of the cross and the resurrection was preached and the very first harvest that followed it. Now, we don't want to miss this. Just a preface as we get ready to get into our section of Scripture this morning. We want to understand that this chapter, Acts chapter 2, serves as a model for all of us. Peter's message serves as a model for the proclamation of the gospel that takes place under the empowering and the leading of the Holy Spirit. What Peter said and how he said it and the results that follow are a model for the church today. Up to this point in our study of Acts, we've seen that God is doing a miraculous work. He's just poured out his Holy Spirit upon the disciples. And a crowd of onlookers have gathered to see what all the commotion is about. And Peter, of all people, moved by the Holy Spirit, seizes the opportunity to speak. And he begins by explaining what has just happened. And we pick up in verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love that verse. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now there's three things that we want to take notice of in verses 14 through 21. The very first thing is this. Peter raised his voice. He spoke up. And I love this because what we see is that a man who could not stand before a young woman 50 days earlier is now standing up before a multitude in the very city that Jesus was crucified just 50 days earlier. A man who could not stand up to a young woman 50 days earlier is now lifting up his voice to a multitude and he demands their attention. He literally says, heed my words. Listen to what I have to say. The gospel must be spoken and it must be heard. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if you will, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 10 in your Bibles. I wasn't planning to do this and this morning I did it and I felt like it was the Lord Romans chapter 10, as we, um, this verse has been on my heart over the last few weeks as we're preparing and planning to go to Nepal here in a month and a half. There's eight of us from this church that are going to be flying out to Kathmandu, Nepal, and, um, and we're going to be trekking up into the Gorkha district of Nepal, which is kind of to the northwest of uh, Kathmandu, um, to a church. It's called the Church Above the Clouds. And um, it's six, there's a six-hour hike. The last road, it ends, and you get out and you start walking for six hours in order to get to the church. And so that's going to be our kind of base of operations. And from there, we're going to start spreading out and going up higher into the areas, um, to the villages, the Himalayan villages that are up there, places that have never heard the gospel or the name of Jesus ever spoken. And we're going to be carrying the gospel into these far-reached, unreached people groups there in Nepal. And so this verse has been on my, on my heart. Verse 14 of Romans chapter 10. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And then verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the very thing that we see here in these verses, the very first thing is that he opens his mouth. He makes himself available. And you may not be ready. You may not be prepared. You may not think you really have anything to say, but the question is, are you available? God uses available people, right? You guys have heard the, 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 the acronym FAT, Faithful, Available, teachable, teachable People. God uses fat people, right? Faithful. I always add an S. God uses fast people. Faithful, available, spirit-filled, and teachable people. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have all the gifts that you're the most eloquent, but are you available? People always ask me when I'm teaching, hey, are you ready? I always say I'm never ready. I'm available. And here is Peter, and he stands up, and he opens his mouth. He lifts his voice. And secondly, notice this. He silenced the mockers with his common sense. He lifts his voice, and he silences the mockers with his common sense. Verse 14. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. He's responding to a phrase, a statement that was made in verse 13, where it says, other mockers said they are full of new wine. These, the Holy Spirit's falling. These people are talking in different tongues, uh, tongues of fire upon their heads. And people are like, these guys are insane. They're just drunk. And Peter says, oh, that's ridiculous. They're not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. The bar isn't even open at 9 o'clock in the morning. This is not drunkenness. This is a work of God. And then the third thing that we see, not only does he stand up and speak, he opens his mouth, and then he silences the mockers with common sense. But thirdly, he points them to the word of God. He points them to the word of God. Verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And he begins to quote Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And what Peter is saying to them is that the events that you've just witnessed, verses 1 through 13 of Acts chapter 2, is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And we'll see the ultimate fulfillment of that when, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But his point is this. This event was a legitimate work of God. God was pouring out his spirit upon his people here in Acts chapter 2. And here's the thing. And we don't want to miss this. God continues to pour out his spirit on his people in these last days. Amen? He continues to do so. God is not done establishing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God is not done saving people. God is not done manifesting his glory. God is not done revealing his power. God is not done. He continues to pour out his spirit on his people in these last days. So he stands up. He silences them through common sense. He points them to the scriptures. And all this is an introduction to this gospel sermon that we see in verses 22 through 28. Men of Israel, he says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. If you take notes, underline that phrase, as you yourselves also know. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you have, will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of joy in your presence. A couple things here that we want to observe and take note of. The first thing that Peter does is that he preaches Jesus. The first thing he does is he preaches Jesus. I think too often when we read through the book of Acts, especially the first two chapters of Acts, is that we lose sight of the main point. We lose sight of the main subject of these events. The main subject is not the Holy Spirit, the main subject is not the gift of tongues, though it is true we see both here in the first two chapters. But the main subject of Peter's sermon is Jesus. That's the main subject of the book of Acts. It's Jesus. And this is so encouraging to us, those of us who have desired to be and to do so much for the Lord, to be used by him, and yet we have failed so miserably. I think if I were to ask for a show of hands, I'm not going to. If I were to ask for a show of hands and say, hey, how many of us have prayed and asked, Lord, to help us be more bold in our witness for Christ? I imagine every hand in this room would go up. How many of us have asked, Lord, help me to speak of you as much, as often, and as many ways as possible? And I bet you every hand would go up. I also think that every hand would go up if I said, how many of us have felt like we've failed miserably and we feel like God is calling us to say something and we don't do it? I bet you every hand in this room would go up. Two of mine would go up for sure, right? We're all in that same boat. Peter wanted to be an effective witness of Jesus Christ, just like all of us want to. And he painfully discovered the words of Jesus to be true when Jesus declared this, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. And all of us know that far too well. Now, listen. Again, we don't want to miss this. That which Peter always desired to do and to be for Jesus in the natural, he was accomplished because of the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Jesus immersed Peter in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter's a different person here in Acts chapter 2. And we've read about him all the way through the Gospels until this point. He's been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And Peter serves as a model for us, showing us that we need to experience and that we can experience the same work of Jesus baptizing us in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so after directing their minds to remember the words of the Old Testament, now Peter directs their hearts to the living word. To Jesus himself. John Stott 
says this, the best way to understand Pentecost, however, is not through the Old Testament prediction, but through the New Testament fulfillment. Not through Joel, but through Jesus. Amen? I'm going to say, I'm going to ask for that a lot. Amen. So just be free. Let them, let them just roll off your lips today. Amen? Amen. No gospel is about, okay, sorry, the gospel is about Jesus, and Jesus is about the gospel. There is no gospel without him. It is, it is incomplete. It's not true, and it cannot save. Amen? Amen. Second, Peter informed them, the audience, so he's now turning toward them. He says, hey, it's all about Jesus, and guess what? We're guilty of sending him to the cross. He turns to them, and he reveals to them their culpability, their sin, and their guilt. Verse 23, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death the Savior of the world. By calling them lawless, Peter is calling them sinners. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. The word lawless means to be without law, and lawlessness is a violation or rebellion against the law of God. And besides being lawless, he says that they used lawless hands, possibly in reference to the Romans, possibly in reference to the religious leaders of the day. They used lawless hands to murder Christ. I'm going to read this verse from the CSB translation. It says, you also used lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. And so by telling them that they're responsible for Jesus' murder, Peter makes it clear, makes clear their guilt and shame before God. And we're going to come back to this in a little while. So number one, he stands up. Number, one, he, number two, he says, we're all guilty of sending Jesus to the cross. And number three, he says, but guess what? It was all part of God's plan. It was all part of God's plan. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Peter's telling us that Jesus' death was not happenstance. It wasn't just a freak accident. It wasn't unforeseen. It wasn't out of God's control. Rather, God knew it, and in fact, God planned it to happen. And what Peter's doing is he's exposing the seemingly absurd contradiction of divine sovereignty and human free will. John Polhill says this, in the paradox of divine sovereignty and human freedom, Jesus died as the result of deliberate human decision made in the exercise of their God-given freedom of choice. To be sure, God was working in these events of willful human rebellion to bring about his eternal purposes. And I love this last section. Bringing out of the tragedy of the cross the triumph of the resurrection. Isn't that amazing? Bringing out of the tragedy of the cross the triumph of the resurrection. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph is speaking to his brothers and he says to them, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. I don't know if Joseph understood or knew, but he was like taking an arrow from this quiver of faith and launching this prophetic arrow into history to foreshadow what was going to happen at the cross of Calvary that Jesus Christ would die. What, men, what mankind meant for evil, God would use for good in order to bring about the salvation of mankind. Wonderful, glorious, beautiful. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross had to happen um, for God to redeem and rescue believing sinners. There can be no saving gospel without Christ's atoning death. And a gospel that is without Christ's atoning death is not God's saving gospel. So he stands up. He lets them know that they're guilty. Then he, he lets them know it's God's plan. And then fourthly, Peter testified to the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus died but rose again. Verse 24, whom God raised up. I've had so many questions with people over the years, over the 30 years I've I've been uh, saved and, and been in ministry of why is the crucifix or sorry why is the resurrection so important to Christians? What's the big deal about the resurrection? Simply put, 
There's no Christianity without the resurrection. There's no Christianity without the resurrection. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, Paul says this, and if Christ is not raised or risen, then our preaching is empty and our faith is also empty or literally useless. If Christ is not risen, he says in verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He goes on in verse 18 and says, and those who have died, they've just perished. There's, there's no hope if Jesus has not risen. And so there is no Christianity without the resurrection. Secondly, there's no gospel. There's no message of salvation without the resurrection. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ is not risen, then all our preaching is empty. Literally, it's just smoke and mirrors. That's all it is. And so there's no Christianity. There's no gospel without the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus affirms that Jesus is God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And lastly, the resurrection of Jesus is proof that God the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins, making us right before God. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says this, New Living Translation, that he, Jesus, was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So the resurrection is a big deal. It's huge. It's vitally important to our faith and to the reality of our eternity. So he, he preaches Jesus. He tells us that we're all guilty. Um, it's all part of God's plan. He testifies the resurrection. And fifthly, Peter testified that Jesus' resurrection is the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy confirming that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. In verses 25 through 28, Peter quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And in verse 27, he quotes this, You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption meaning that Jesus, the Messiah, would not remain dead long enough for his body to decay. And what's amazing is that this section, Psalm 16, was written a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. And it announces that he would rise from the dead after he was crucified. And we know that he rose three days after he died upon the cross. And this is Peter's eyewitness statement to the reality of, of Jesus, to the reality of the resurrected Christ. Let me just say this before we move on. Every single person in this room has so much to give in regard to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Literally every single person has so much to give in regard to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your life is a testimony. Your very life is a testimony of the goodness, rich mercy, and grace of God. Years ago, I remember a friend of mine telling me the story about how they used to go down in California, down to Huntington Beach Pier. Have you ever been to Huntington Beach Pier? Beer? Huntington Beach Pier. Another thing, sorry, never mind. <laughs> Huntington Beach Pier. And they would go down there, and they would just go down, the high school kids would go down there to share the gospel, right? And they, this one girl, this one young girl, only saved a couple months, goes down to share her faith. And as she goes down there, she encounters this older man, very bright, and he begins to ask her all these questions. She tries to tell you know, her story or give her testimony, and he begins to hear all these questions. And she's like, sir, I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that Jesus saved my life. And he asks more questions and more questions. Sir, I don't know the answer to that, but all I know is that Jesus transformed who I am as a person. Ask more questions, more questions. Sir, I don't know the answer there. All I know is that Jesus saved my life. Your life, my life, is a living testimony of the goodness and rich mercy and grace of God. You and I are living trophies of God's grace. And just as Peter indicts all, 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 all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, for the murder, murder of Jesus in verses 22 and 23, the reality is he indicts all of us as well. He indicts all of us as well. It was 
literally my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. More so than it was the Roman hands that held the nail and the hammer. It was my sin that convicted him. It was my voice that cried out from the crowd. They were my hands, my lawless hands that put him to death. And here's the amazing thing. Here's what's so incredible. God flipped the tables on my sin. And he used what was intended for evil to bring about the greatest good in my life and in your life, in his rich mercy and because of his great love for us. Jesus turned the tables of our sin and he made us sons and daughters of God. Amen? Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. I love how he starts out. He says, but God. I think two of the most profound and powerful words found in the Bible are those two words, but God. You might be sitting here this morning thinking, God can never forgive me for what I have done, but God. God can never deliver me from my addictions. Guess what? But God. God can never heal my marriage. My marriage is in shambles, but God. God cannot deliver me from this ailment that I have to carry around with me each and every day that looms over me each and every day. Guess what? But God, I just had a conversation after our second service, our first service with a gentleman in the back talking about how God healed him from cancer on his tongue, way down in his throat. Got to the point where he literally was having Heimlich's every single day because he couldn't swallow food, couldn't swallow water. He didn't even know it was there, but his body was in pain. And then he goes to the doctor. The doctor's like, we don't know what to do. We're going to have to cut your entire tongue out. And he said, there's no way. He goes, I give you three, at the best, most, three months to live. He got off the table. He said, I don't want to be rude. I don't want to offend you, but you're not God. God is in control of my life. He has numbered my days. And God healed him from that cancer. But God... I love that word, those words, but it doesn't matter what we're facing, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen. But God. And Peter reminds the crowd that they're eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. As you yourselves know. Remember I had you underline that. As you yourselves know, you are eyewitnesses of the miracles, the wonders, and the signs performed by Jesus. And while you and I have lived it differently than they have, we've experienced it perhaps differently than they have, Paul, the apostle, tells us that you and I are living epistles, epistles that, that people read on a daily basis. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, reading from the J.B. Phillips translation, it says, you yourselves are our testimonial, written in our hearts, and yet open for everyone to inspect and read. You're an open letter about Christ, which we ourselves have written, not with pen or ink, but with the, lit, with the, with the Spirit of the living God. Our message has been engraved not in stone, but in living men and women. Brothers and sisters, listen to me this morning. You, your life, changed by Jesus is one of the most powerful and profound and compelling testimonies to the reality of Jesus Christ. Just let him see Jesus in your life. Tell people what he's done for you. You don't have to preach a gospel. You don't have to open up the scriptures and preach through Acts chapter 2. All you have to do is just tell people what Jesus has done for you. Amen? And let them see the reality in your life of the risen and resurrected Jesus. Just live Jesus each and every day. And so, verses 29 through 36, proclaiming the proclamation of the redemptive plan, 
Verse 29, I love how this happens again. Verse 29, he says, men and brethren. This is a third time that Peter has called for the attention of the people. I don't know if they were easily distracted. I don't know if they suffered from a little bit of ADHD. I'm not sure what was going on. But three times he has to call them to attention. Verse 14, he stands up and he raises his voice to them and he says, heed my words. And verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. And hear again in verse 29. It's interesting of how this hall works out. Originally in verse 14, he talks to those who are from Judea and all them, all that belong to Jerusalem. And then he goes down and he says, hey, men of Israel, it's now expanded the scope. And then he brings it down to earth. And he goes, guys, listen, we're all the same. Jesus Christ and what he has done upon the cross has made level ground at the foot of the cross. We're all the same. You and me, and he calls them brothers. Men and brethren, he says, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. There's a couple things in this section. Number one, the resurrected Christ is exalted. That's what Peter says. He rose from the dead and he's exalted. At the right hand of God, verse 33 says. And then verse 36, he says that God the Father has now given him, has now made him both Lord and Christ, or literally sovereign ruler and Messiah. And he tells us in verses 34 and 35 that this is the fulfillment of what was spoken of in Psalm 110, verse 1, that God the Father is going to reward the Son for his obedience. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul picks up this idea and he says this, beginning in verse 8, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom God has raised up, is now exalted at the right hand of God. And then he says this, and this exalted, resurrected Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people. Therefore, verse 33, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the, Holy, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Peter says, everything that you've seen and heard in verses 1 through 13 is proof that Jesus is risen and that Jesus is alive. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples right before he, he went to the cross in John chapter 16, verse 7. He says, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And so Peter's point is this. If Jesus was actually dead and did not rise from the grave, then the Holy Spirit could not come. It's impossible but the very fact that the Holy Spirit did come, of which you just saw, you just heard and witnessed with your own eyes, is evidence that Jesus is risen and that Jesus is alive and that he has done what he promised to do. And so up to this point, we've seen the event, verses 1 through 13. He's now explained what has happened in verses 14 through 36. And now we get to see the reaction. We get to see the response. Verse 37 and now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Maybe some of your translations might say they were cut to the quick or pierced in the heart. 
And the idea is their minds were persuaded and their consciences were convicted. And so the, the focal point is now off of Peter and now it's looking at the, the, the people who are gathered around at that time. And it says that as they heard the explanation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, now has fulfilled his promise to send his Holy Spirit, you've just seen it in verses 1 through 13. And look at the response. It says they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? An incredible, appropriate question. When truth has been revealed, what are we to do with it? How are we to respond to it? Peter's preaching proved effective. The crowd was confronted with God's truth, and they were convicted by the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 8, Jesus says, And when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, I think it's appropriate. Over the last four or five months that we have been here, I've had multiple conversations with people within the walls of this building that there needs to be an understanding. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. There are two completely separate things. Conviction is from the Lord, and it's designed to draw us to him. It's designed to get our attention that we will now turn to God and ask this question, what shall we do? condemnation is not from the Lord, and it's designed to push us away from God. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is not of God. Conviction is of the Holy Spirit, and it's used as a tool to turn our hearts toward him and ask that question, what shall we do? And here we see the Holy Spirit convicting the crowd with the truth of who Jesus is. And this led to this important question, what should we do? F.F. Bruce says this, if Jesus of Nazareth was indeed their appointed Messiah, then no guilt could be greater than the guilt of treating him as he had been treated. If they had refused him in whom all of their hope of salvation rested, what hope of salvation was left to them now? Well might they cry out in anguish of heart. What are we to do, brothers? And then in verses 28 through 39, we see Peter's answer. And he says this, repent. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. They ask the question, what are we to do? And Peter's response is almost uh, methodical. It's almost systematic in the sense that he presents them these four essentials for, for Christian conversion or for the conversion experience. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, receive forgiveness of sin, and the salvific work of the Holy Spirit. Those four things. Let's look at the first one, repent. The Greek word translated repent is the word matanaeo, and it means literally to change your mind, to change your attitude, to change direction. It's like a spiritual about face, a 180 degree turn, but it carries with it something else. It has this idea of to hardly amend or to turn with abhorrence or hatred of the things that you used to do before you turned to Christ. It means to have a hatred for the past life and the past self, but to turn to God. In context, it means to make a conscious, intentional, purposeful decision to turn away from this stuff that used to draw you away from God and to turn toward God and God's actions through Jesus Christ. It is literally faith in action. Repentance is the evidence of real faith in Jesus. Whoa, that's heavy. That seems kind of harsh. Listen, the Bible tells us that repentance is the evidence of real faith. Without repentance, there is no real faith. No repentance, no faith. No faith, no salvation. 
It's all connected together. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says this, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading towards salvation. Literally, this idea, this sorrow, this hatred, this, this desire to, to be right with God and recognizing that you have offended the Lord, that sorrow in your heart brings about repentance where you turn to God and you say, God, forgive me of my sin. And it says it leads to salvation. And repentance here is in the imperative tense, meaning that it's a command. Did you know that God commands everyone everywhere to repent? In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, it says God commands all men everywhere to repent. When he says all men, how many men is that? Everybody. Everyone that breathes breath on this side of heaven. He says every person in every place they could be, doesn't matter where they are, he, calls, he commands all men everywhere to repent. And what's interesting is not only does God command all men to repent, but did you know that the very first sermon that Jesus ever taught was a call to repentance? The very first sermon that Peter teaches, we're looking at it here in Acts chapter 2, is a call to repentance. The very first sermon that Paul the Apostle ever taught was a call to re- You guys see the theme? And guess what? The gospel also calls us to repentance. Luke chapter 24, verse 46. Thus it was written for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. So the very first thing he says, when they ask the question, what should we do? We recognize that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. We recognize this. We need what he has to offer. What should we do? Repent. Second, be baptized. Be baptized. Now, baptism was familiar to the Jews. It wasn't something unfamiliar. They they practiced baptism. So if there was a, a person who had walked away from the faith and they wanted to rededicate their lives, or they just wanted to maybe... Maybe they hadn't walked away, but they just wanted to get maybe more serious with the Lord. They would give themselves, they'd submit themselves to water baptism. Or perhaps if you were a Gentile converting to Judaism, you would be baptized in water as well. And so they're familiar with this phrase, being baptized. But notice what Peter adds to it. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's something new. And it's something better. And notice this, that baptism comes after repentance, not before. It comes after. Baptism never precedes repentance. It always follows it. Why? Because what is baptism? Baptism is a public expression of what is already taking place inwardly, namely conversion, conversion and regeneration. And two things need to exist in the heart of a person being baptized. Number one, that they recognize that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And number two, that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord of their life. Amen? Baptism illustrates or symbolizes the believer's spiritual, spiritual identity with Jesus. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. He says, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It's this idea where you're being immersed and you're identifying with Jesus being put in the grave. And it has a second idea of being cleansed and you come up out of there as if you're being reborn, right? Raised from the dead, cleansed of your sin. That's the picture. It's an identification with Jesus. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says this, For I am crucified with Christ, dead to self. Right? I'm dying to myself. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Guys, listen. We do not get baptized to earn God's forgiveness, but rather we get baptized because God has already what? Forgiven us. He's already done it. And let me say this to you this morning. 
If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you haven't been baptized, you need to be. You need to be baptized. It's Christ's command that requires our obedience. And so in response to the question, what are we to do? Repent, be baptized, receive the remission of your sins or the forgiveness of your sin. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I believe this morning as I was going through my notes, I needed to say this today. This isn't in my notes, but I needed. To, I said it first service and I believe it's true for this service as well. There's someone in this room today who struggles with asking God to forgive you. There's someone in this room that thinks God will never be able to forgive me for this. I've, I've messed up so royally, I can't even ask him to forgive me. And these two verses are for you. Because notice the promise. It's in the affirmative. It's going to happen. It's not an if you do this, then perhaps I will do this. I might do this for you. Notice these words again. Repent, that's the command, therefore, and be converted that your sins might be blotted out. Almost as if God is saying this, so that I can forgive you. Because I want to forgive you. And all I'm asking you is that you repent and I will forgive you. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You've carried that burden, that guilt and that shame far too long. It's eating you, eating away at you. And Jesus beckons you this morning to repent that your sins may be blotted out, that you might be refreshed and restored. And 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? All of it. Is there anything that you could do save rejecting Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Anything you could do that God would not forgive? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so he says, repent, be baptized, receive the forgiveness of sins, and thirdly, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is talking about the salvific work of the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Repent. Be baptized. Receive forgiveness. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, saving and sealing your heart for eternity. And I love verse 39 because verse 39 expands upon the promise of forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. And he tells us that, tells us that this blessing applies to everyone whom God calls. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children. Not just for those who are listening at the moment, but for every preceding um, generation that comes from them. And for all who are, I said preceding, succeeding, generation that comes from them and for all who are far off as many as the lord our god will call the handbook on the uh, acts of the apostles says this in the present context god's promise refers to his promise regarding the holy spirit and your children indicates not merely the children of the people who are listening but all of their descendants as well and notice what he says as many as the lord our god will call. That phrase emphasizes the universal scope of the promise. And John Stott finishes it by saying this, everyone God calls to himself through Christ receives both gifts, the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. The gifts of God are coextensive with the call of God. And finally, God calls people to himself by his spirit through the preaching of the gospel. In verses 40 through 41, Peter, and we read in verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. 
And those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. I love this because Peter was probably the very first Calvary Chapel long-winded pastor, right? And he's still going and looks like, dude, I cannot. My hand is killing me. I'm just going to say he talked a lot more, said more, many more words and exhorted them with this phrase, be saved and be saved from this perverse generation. So we're cut from the same cloth as Peter for sure. But here he says, hey, listen, all these things that I've said, he's just talked about what, that Jesus Christ was God's appointed Messiah, put to death by the, in the, by the hands of men for the purpose and plan of God, raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of God, poured out his Holy Spirit, and then he tells them, repent, be baptized, be forgiven, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he exhorts them, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved. Peter preached the gospel. The crowd listened to the gospel. 3,000 people believed the gospel and were born of the Spirit. This is the church. The church is not a building. To ask the question, how has the church survived and thrived over 2,000 years? Because the church is not a building. It's a redeemed people. It's God's redeemed people. And here we meet 3,000 more of them. This is ecclesia, the called out ones. And these are the people whom God called out of this perverse generation and called into his family and his kingdom. And we have the blessed opportunity to sit next to them every single Sunday and to live life with them all throughout the week. The blessed people of God, saints saved by grace, called out by his mercy and through his power. Amen? But these words ring through the annals of Scripture. Be saved. Be saved. And perhaps there's someone here this morning who that, that still needs to happen in your life. God is calling you out from this perverse generation to live a life for his glory. And he's saying, be saved. And it doesn't matter, you might have some hookups, some hangups in your life where you're going like, I just can't, I can't do this until I get this right in my own life. There's things I have to clean up before I can say yes to Jesus. There's things I have to get right before I can say yes to Jesus. I, I can't do, I have to clean up my own house before I can start entering into his house. And the Bible tells us today, hey, don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, but let today if you hear his voice, let today be the day where you're saved. Let today be the day where you respond to the grace of God in your life. And echoing back to a few weeks ago when we taught through Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, you guys remember Joshua, he draws a line in the sand. He says, today's the day, guys. Today is the day. And he says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river of Egypt and serve the Lord. Today's that day. Today is a moment of decision for you. Serve the Lord. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. And Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. And let that be the cry of your heart today. Again, you might be thinking, there's things I've done, I cannot, even this, I had another conversation earlier about this, and I know this happens to guys so much, that men have a hard time accepting God as their father because their earthly father was so bad. They had a horrible experience growing up in the home. And so when we talk about God the father, they can't relate to that. It's just distanced them. They can't relate to this idea that God is my father because their earthly father was such a jerk. Don't let that be the hill that you die on. Don't let that be the obstacle that keeps you from coming to the Lord. Let that go. Turn away from that and turn to Jesus today. Be saved today. Repent be baptized, be forgiven of your sins, and allow the Holy Spirit to fill and seal your heart. Amen? Amen. I'm going to have the worship team make their way up. And as I do, I want to read this last thing from John Stott. 
It says it's not enough to proclaim Jesus. For there are many different Jesuses being presented today. According to the New Testament gospel, however, Jesus is historical, theological, and contemporary. He's historical in the sense that he really lived and died and rose and ascended in the arena of history. He's theological. His life, death, resurrection, ascension all have saving significance. He's contemporary in that he lives and reigns to bestow salvation on those who respond to him. Thus, the apostle told the same story of Jesus at three levels. As historic event, witnessed with their own eyes, as having theological significance interpreted by the scriptures, and as contemporary message confronting men and women with the necessity of decision. And you and I have the same responsibility today to tell the story of Jesus as fact, doctrine, and gospel. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be people that are available to you. Help us to be a people, Lord God, that though we're weak and we're frail and we feel like we have nothing to offer, Lord Jesus, you saved our lives. You transformed us. And we believe in you. And our prayer this morning is help us with our unbelief. Help us to trust you that you know what you're doing, even when we don't. That you know the words that need to be spoken, even when we don't. You know the actions that need to be taken, even when we don't. And so, Lord, help us to be available to you. And, Lord, for those in this room today who, with eyes closed and heads bowed, those in this room today who need to repent and come to you, who need to answer the call of God to be saved from this perverse generation, And that's you this morning. You've sat there and your heart has been pricked as we've just encountered and looked at the risen Christ. And you say verbally, I believe that, but in your heart you know you don't live it. And you're living for other things other than for Jesus. There's other idols, other gods in your heart that are pulling you away and you sense the condemnation and the shame and the guilt but the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning to repent. Let today be the day where you respond. If that's you this morning and you need to repent, I want you just right now where you're at with heads bowed and eyes closed, just to lift your hand and say, that's me this morning. I need to respond to the Lord. Amen, I see you on the right. Praise the Lord. Anyone else here this morning? Just wants to respond to the Lord. Let today be the day as the Holy Spirit's moving in your heart, there's things in your life that you're just not bringing before the Lord because of shame, because of guilt, because of fear. Let today be the day where you bring it to him and lay it at his feet and leave it there. Allow him to forgive you. Allow him to wash over you that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Anyone else here this morning? In the back in the middle as well. Praise the Lord. Thank you, God. Father, for these individuals who've responded to the work of your Holy Spirit in their lives, Lord, as they lifted their hands, we pray, Lord God, that you would lift them up, that you would buoy them, Lord, as they ask your forgiveness, whether it be for lack of faith or, Lord, for their own interdependence rather than depending upon you, Lord, looking to other things themselves or other people to satisfy the the longing of their hearts. Lord, whether they're following after or worshiping things they should not be worshiping, dabbling in things they should not be dabbling in. Lord, for mistakes they've made in the past, they're afraid to bring to you and admit that they've even done these things. We ask, Lord God, that today would be the day, Lord, that you forgive their sin. Today would be the day that you wash over them, that you refresh them. They could truly feel the liberty that comes from 1 John 1, 9 that says when we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, may they leave this place today free. You say in your word, he who the Son has set free is free indeed. And so, Father, we pray liberate, liberate today. 
liberate and empower for the working of your Holy Spirit in their lives, we ask. In Jesus' name.